Well, good morning. It's my uh, privilege to be preaching God's word to you this morning on this morning after Christmas. I hope we're all well rested and well fed this morning. Got to be honest, I'm, I'm maybe a little underrested and definitely overfed, but that's okay. God's good, and we're and He's got me ready, and I hope you're ready to go because we're we're wrapping up our doctrine and devotion sermon series through the book of Titus. So last week we saw the Apostle Paul express his hope that believers on the island of Crete would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by the way they lived. And Pastor Chris told us that the word adorn literally means ornament, like the ornament on a Christmas tree. And so what Paul's saying is that the lives of Christians should make the gospel of Jesus Christ seem beautiful and attractive to others. That When unbelievers look on the lives of Christians, they should be drawn to the Lord. So last week, Pastor Chris urged all of us to ask ourselves, is my life an ornament for the gospel? Am I attracting people to the gospel by the way I live? And that same question, or really theme, is at the heart of our passage again this week. So Paul just moves from the context of the household relationships that he was describing in chapter two, and he moves out to a more public context of how Christians should act and interact in the world. But the question is really the same. Does my life as a Christian adorn the gospel? Do I attract others to Christ, or do I repel them from Christ by the way that I live? So this week I thought I would look into some data to see how the American church is doing in this area of attracting or repelling. What I found was disappointing, but I must admit not all that surprising. So just two weeks ago, Pew Research Center published a study which found that 63% of Americans identify as Christian, which is down from 78% in 2007. The percentage of Americans who say they pray daily is down to 45% from 58. The percentage who say they pray seldom or never is up to 32% from 18. The percentage of Americans who say that religion is very important to them is at 41%, but that's down from 56. And the percentage who say that religion is not at all important to them is up to 33% from 16. Not good trends, not good trends. But again, I wasn't really surprised by them, and I would imagine that most of you are not surprised by them either. I would imagine that most of you have had this sense that Christianity has been in decline in this country for some time. But that still doesn't answer the question of why. So why is the practice and influence of Christianity in decline in this country? And of course, there's lots of possibilities for this, lots of possible answers. We can't exactly pin it down to just one thing that we know is the cause. But as I looked at the survey data, one thing really caught my attention. And that is that evangelicals are far more likely to blame the culture for these trends, whereas non-religious people are far more likely to blame Christians specifically misconduct by Christian leaders. And so Christians, Christians, we tend to blame others for the decline of Christianity in this country, and others tend to blame 
Christians for the decline of Christianity in this country. So then I got to thinking, we're going deep this morning, I hope you're ready. What exactly do non-Christians think of Christians? And that led me to yet another study, 2019, by the Barna Group. And it found that non-Christians were far more likely to describe evangelicals. Now, evangelicals, that's the, that's the group of Christians that we are in this room. That includes us here at Harmony. Non-Christians were far more likely to describe evangelicals, even two to six times more likely to describe evangelicals as narrow-minded, homophobic, misogynistic, or racist than they were to describe evangelicals as caring, friendly, hopeful, or generous. Church, do you think we might have a gospel adornment problem? I think the author of the Barna study put it well when he said, of course, it's most important that Christians of all traditions, evangelical or otherwise, concern themselves with the reputation of Jesus, not merely the perception of evangelicals. And I can say amen. But he says, yet, will the public witness of evangelicals be a bridge or a barrier to the very thing they hold most dear, that is, persuading others to put their faith in Christ. And he says the findings strongly suggest that the perceptions of evangelicals are far more barrier than bridge on the road to gaining a hearing for the gospel. So brothers and sisters, I think we have some soul searching to do this morning. But that's okay, because God has a good word for us. I hope, I hope you feel the weight of those findings that I just shared with us, but I hope you are expectant to hear what God has for us in Titus chapter three. So Titus chapter three is where we're gonna be. If you haven't already done so, please turn in your Bibles there, Titus chapter three. Last week in chapter two, we saw Paul lay out what gospel adornment looks like in certain types of relationships, and here in chapter three, he extends this theme outward to the public life of the believer. And we're gonna see in our passage that if you wanna have a life that adorns the gospel, then your life must first be transformed by the gospel. So let's take a look at our passage, starting with the first two verses, chapter three, verses one and two. Paul writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. The them is Christians, by the way. Remind Christians, the believers, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. All right, I've got to admit that that first part being submissive to rulers and authorities, it's really challenging for me. So I feel like there's a war going on inside of me when I read, a, read words like that because on the one hand, it's my instinct to want to resist authority. Okay, that's just kind of how I am, I think. I know it's not just me, it's part of our fallen human condition, but it's also part of our American tradition. I mean, our, our country was birthed in a rebellion after all. And it's even part of our Iowan tradition. I mean, our state motto is, our liberties we prize, our rights we will maintain. 
And I read into that like, we're gonna maintain them here, okay? So don't tread on me. And I love it. <laughs> I love words like that. And I, I, I think like, if, 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 if words of liberty were a love language, that'd be my love language. Amen. <laughs> and I feel like when one of my rights is being infringed upon, or even less than that, if I just see a rule or a law that I think is stupid, I want nothing more than to resist, to protest, to stand up, to fight back, to not submit. But on the other hand, I am confronted by the very words of Scripture, the plain words, and it's right there. I am to submit to rulers and authorities. I am to be obedient it's not just in Titus 3, by the way. It's in Romans chapter 13. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's as if God knows that we struggle with this one. And I know that the rulers and authorities in Paul's day were not any easier to submit to than the rulers and authorities in our day. They were not upstanding individuals. They were not champions of liberty. They were not friends of Christians. They were just the opposite and so as much as I would love to minimize these words, rationalize them, explain them away, there they are. There they are, and I must submit to them because they're the very words of God. Now, at the same time, as I study this doctrine of submission to rulers and authorities, I, I realize, I learn how complex it is. And I, I want to share with you, I do not have it all figured out. So there's a lot I'm still unsettled on. So, for example, I'm still unsettled on whether the American Revolution was biblically justified. Blasphemy, I know, I know. Trust me, it pains me to say that, but I'm unsettled on it. But I'm also unsettled on, on whether and to what extent civil disobedience is an appropriate form of protest. And I'm unsettled about whether you can or whether you might or where you might draw the line between a, a God-appointed, legitimate government that you must submit to and an illegitimate, tyrannical regime that you may be permitted to rebel against. These are the kinds of things that Christian thinkers write about and debate about and wrestle with, and I, and I, and I don't have answers for all of them yet. I am still unsettled on some of these things. I don't have, I don't have answers for how how every possible application of this uh, could come into play in our lives. But I do think there are two things that are very clear from Scripture. I do think there are two things very clear about this doctrine, so I want to share, with the, share those with you this morning. And first, that is, if or when you're forced to choose between submission to government or submission to God, you must choose submission to God. So if, if it's one or the other, submitting to government means sinning against God, if that is true, then you must submit to God, period. That's a line you cannot cross, even if it means disobeying your government. So Romans 13.1 tells us that, that any government authority that exists in this world comes from God. He's the ultimate authority. And so it would make no sense at all for us down here to obey a, a small k earthly king if that meant disobeying the capital K cosmic king of the universe. Amen? Yeah. Amen. And if, we, and if we're not amen to that, we've got examples in scripture. So we've got Daniel 
chapter six, where Daniel uh, kept praying to God, even though that was forbidden. And we've got his, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that refused to worship the golden image, even though that was commanded. And we've got the apostles, Peter and John, in the book of Acts, continuing to proclaim the name of Jesus, even though they were forbidden from doing so. And Peter, he sums it all up well in chapter five of Acts, when he says, quote, we must obey God rather than men. So we must obey God rather than men. So that's the first thing that's clear about submitting to government authorities. If you're forced to choose between one or the other, you must obey God. The second thing that's clear is that regardless of whether you have the right to do something, so even if this isn't technically a submission issue because you have the right to do it, nevertheless, your Christian witness is on the line. So that's really what much of this passage is about. That's really what much of this letter is about. Are you gonna live your life in such a way that adorns or tarnishes the reputation of Jesus Christ? So even if you have the right to do something, are you doing it in a way that is humble and gentle and showing perfect courtesy to all people? That last one's a tough one, isn't it? Perfect courtesy to all people. So let's stick with the political context for a minute. How are we doing, church, showing perfect courtesy to the politicians we don't like? Or the, the people that we disagree with in politics? How we do, how's our social media feed looking these days? How is, our, how is our personal, our private conversations among family and friends over the holidays? Are we showing perfect courtesy? Let's take a real timely example for a minute here. Let's talk about Let's Go Brandon. All right, now I will admit that when I first saw that video clip and I heard the crowd chanting something that definitely was not Let's Go Brandon, and I heard or saw the reporter just try to awkwardly navigate that, I admit I, I laughed. I thought it was funny. And I'll admit that even when I heard later that the conservatives had, had taken this up, political conservatives had taken this up as like a rallying cry, I, I kind of laughed along with them. I kind of thought, what a, what a clever way to make a point. But then I thought about what that point actually is. And by the way, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, good for you. <laughs> Don't even bother Googling it. Stay pure. Just know that it's something not kind toward our president. And so what I, when I thought about what the actual meaning of those words are, and that, and that conservatives were, were, were chanting, not just conservatives, Christians, chanting this at sporting events and wearing it on their shirts, I cringed. I cringed not because I'm any better than them. I, I'm not. I was laughing along with them, but I cringed because I couldn't help but think, this is not good for our Christian witness. This is not showing perfect courtesy toward all people. 
I mean, if you were face to face with President Biden, would you actually say those words to him? If you, were, if you were chanting that at a sporting event, would you want people around you to know who you are or that you're a Christian or that you attend Harmony Bible Church? Would you even want that? Would they be seeing Christ in you in that moment? If this isn't your struggle, there's something for you too. So showing perfect courtesy extends far beyond politics, does it not? So just think about all the ways we fail to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Think about when we go to a restaurant. Think about when you're impatient with the waiter because your food's too slow. Or think about when you're scornful toward the waiter or the cook because your, your food's not cooked right. Or think about when you're stingy with your tip. Christians, by the way, are notoriously bad tippers. I, I've even, I've, I heard from a, a restaurant worker that uh, she especially does not appreciate it when Christians leave a gospel tract instead of a tip. Is that good for our Christian witness? No. Making it a little more personal to me, not that I haven't done those things. When I experience incompetent customer service at a store or on the phone, which happens far too often than I would like, but as my internal temperature rises and, and, and my wife's grip on my arm tightens, <laughs> if I'm going to be sarcastic or, or sharp or even just kind of show my irritation to the customer service rep, am I representing Christ in that moment? Is his life like shining through me? No. The people that we interact with, this is, this is why it matters, church, because the people that we interact with out there, they know that we're Christians. Or they might learn or hear that we're Christians or that we say we're Christians. And they're watching. Better yet, maybe, just maybe, they might know that we're Christians because of the words of Christ that we would share with them and, and, and the way we would be interacting with them would show them if in that moment we had any concern at all for them and weren't just concerned for ourselves. So church, when we, when we in here interact with others out there, whether it's on social media or at the restaurant or at the store or, or wherever, the reputation of Christ is on the line. And, and are we gonna be a bridge or are we gonna be a barrier to them coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior just as we have? I know I've been fairly negative this morning. I don't like that, it's not my preference. It's mostly just because there's a lot that applies to me here. But I and we are not without hope. 
If you do, like me, struggle with submission to authority and showing perfect courtesy to all people, take heart. There's hope for us. There's hope for us in our passage. There's hope for us in the next few verses. And they actually reveal how we can grow in adorning the gospel. So there's two key things we must do. First, we must remember who we were before Christ. And second, we must remember who we now are in Christ. So if we're gonna grow in adorning the gospel of Christ with our lives, we gotta remember who we were and we gotta remember who we now are. So let's take a look at verse three where we're gonna see that first part of remembering who we were. Verse three, Paul writes, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Brothers and sisters, if we're having trouble showing the love of Christ to others, it's helpful if we remember where we were before Christ got a hold of us. And it wasn't good. We weren't good. We were foolish. We were slaves to our passions, malicious, envious. That last one's my favorite, not favorite. Hated and hating. Receiving the hatred, giving the hatred. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That's who we were. And so when we're interacting with an unbeliever, we've we've got to remember that that's who they still are. They're still slaves to their passions. They're still dead in their trespasses. And if they don't come to know Christ as their Lord, they're not going to have any hope. So in verse three, Paul is calling us, church, us believers, we ourselves calling us to identify with the unbeliever we're struggling to love, to identify with who they are and where they're at and to acknowledge that we too were once helpless. We too were miserable. We too were utterly lost. And we can identify with the loss of this world because we too at one time in these fundamental ways were just like them. Praise God for his grace though, amen? I mean, praise God for his grace because that's where we were, but by God's grace, that's not where we now are. And that's what we're gonna read about here. That's what Paul's gonna disclose to us once again, the glorious gospel of Christ. Let's pick up in verse four. Starting in verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
We could do a whole sermon series on just these five verses. I mean, there, is, there are rich treasures packed in here, and I don't have time to unpack every single one of them in the time we have left, but let, let, let's just look at some of these words again and let these truths sink in. So it, it says in verse four, we learn that God is good and loving. His, his goodness and his loving kindness appeared. God himself, God the Son, took on flesh, was born a man. He appeared. We just celebrated that yesterday. How timely, how timely. He appeared and he appeared to save us, to save us from that terrible state we were in that's described in verse three. And he saved us not because of anything we did or because we're righteous or good, but only according to his mercy. And he not only saved us from the penalty of our sin, but he totally forgave us. He washed us clean. It says, it says we're, we're washed. It says that he, that he not only cleansed us, washed us, forgave us, but he regenerated us. That means like rebirthed us. We're born again. And he renewed us. He made us new. We're transformed from the inside out. We've put off the old self. We've put on the new self. We've, we've passed from spiritual death to life. We became a new creation. And God did all that. This is mind-blowing. God did all that through himself and through the very power of his own spirit who, who was poured out on us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the moment you place your faith in Jesus, God himself, God the Holy Spirit, comes to live in you. And he does that regenerating work, and he does that renewal work. He does that cleansing work. And it says that we're, we're justified by his grace. We're justified, we're, we're, we stand justified before God, a holy God, not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because now by God's spirit, we're united to Christ. The spirit was, was poured out on us through Christ and we're united to him and so we stand justified because his righteousness is credited to us. His righteousness credited to us and so now we stand with him, we stand united to him. And we stand alongside him as co-heirs, heirs of all the eternal heavenly blessings owed to Jesus because he earned them. And we get to receive them by God's grace because we're united to him in his spirit. That's good news, amen? amen. It is such, it's such good news. Paul says that's the trustworthy saying. That's what's excellent and profitable. That's the gospel. You've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. You don't have to earn it because he earned it for you. And you don't have to work for it because you just receive it as a gift from him. This is the gospel that saves and this is what God's people, us, are to remember, insist on, be careful to devote ourselves to so that we can be careful to devote ourselves to good works. You see, if we want to adorn the gospel of Christ with our lives, 
it starts with and continues on with being transformed by the gospel of Christ. And so we never get, we never get around the gospel. We never get past the gospel. Gospel adornment starts with, continues with, gospel transformation. And when the gospel transforms us so that we can be a bridge to others instead of a barrier, it transforms us so that they too can come to know Christ as their Lord and be transformed by him. When we remember the gospel, we remember who we were, we remember who we now are, and we remember that it's all because of God. It's all him. It's all his grace. And so, yeah, we get frustrated with people. And yeah, we look down on people. We get angry with people. And we're selfish. We're, we're sinful people. But we've been called out of that. We've been saved from that. We were hated and hating and we've been saved from it and called out of it because God now is in us, transforming us, and we are representing him to the world. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are Christ's ambassadors, his representatives, and he, Christ, is making his appeal through us. So he transformed us so that we can be a witness for him of his grace and his mercy and his love to a world that desperately needs to know him. And we're able now. We're able. We're not dead anymore. We're alive. We're able to show the grace and mercy and love of God to others because that's what God showed to us. And so when our perspective changes, we know that when we see an unbeliever when we're struggling to love an unbeliever, when we're judging an unbeliever, we shouldn't expect them to be righteous because we weren't either. And we wouldn't be now apart from God who lives in us. And if they're not a believer in Christ, they don't have God in them. They don't have the spirit of God indwelling them and transforming them. So how could they be righteous? They're not made new They're slaves to their passions. They're spiritually dead. And so we can and we should be gracious to the unbeliever. Whether they're in the White House or the house next door. Because when we were just like them, God was gracious to us. And brothers and sisters, Next to this great and glorious news, next to this gospel of Jesus Christ, everything is secondary. It transforms our perspective. It transforms our perspective of unbelievers. It transforms our perspective of each other. That's really what the rest of our passage is about, verses 9 through 11. It's how the gospel transforms us, not only in our relationships with outsiders, but our relationships with each other here, inside, It changes everything because we remember not only who we were and where we now are, and that helps us have love for the unbeliever, but we remember who we were and where we now are, and that helps us have love for the believer, for the brother and sister, knowing and remembering that they too were saved by the grace of God, just like we were saved by the grace of God. And so now Paul's telling them, don't devote yourself to anything else other than this gospel, Avoid the foolish controversies. 
Avoid the dissensions, the quarrels over unprofitable and worthless things. And I could go on and on and list example after example after example of the foolish, unprofitable, worthless things that we in the church can devote ourselves to, but I'll, I'll spare us all that. <laughs> I know you have rich imaginations and have lived these things yourself. But next to the gospel, everything else is secondary. It's the gospel that the world needs, and it's the gospel that we need. And you know what, church? The world is watching us, and it all matters how we live. It matters how we interact with them out there, and it matters for the gospel witness how we interact with us in here. Jesus prayed, Jesus himself prayed in John chapter 17 that his church would be one, even as he and his father are one, so that the world would know that the father sent the son and loves them as he loves the son. In other words, our gospel unity and love for each other is a witness to the world of God's love for them. And so this gospel transformation, it transforms us in how we relate to each other and that too matters to the world, to our witness to the world. Christ's reputation is on the line. And church, I am so thankful to be part of a church that is united in and saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. My prayer for us as a church is that we would always be united in the gospel and saturated with the gospel. And we would increasingly be transformed by the God of the gospel so that our love and unity and affection for each other would grow so that our witness to the world would grow and so that our lives would more and more be an adornment for the gospel of Christ. I pray that that is always true of Harmony Bible Church and is true in increasing measures in the years and generations ahead. So church, as we close out this sermon series as we close out this, this year, let's go to the Lord and let's ask the Lord this question. Is my life a bridge or a barrier to others coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior? Am I a bridge or am I a barrier? And if God reveals to you when you humble yourself before him and ask him that question, if he reveals barriers in your life, just thank him for that. Just thank him. Don't resist that. Thank him for that. And, and, and thank him for the opportunity now in the power of his spirit who lives in you to turn from that, tear that barrier down so that you can start building bridges. In church, I pray that in 2022, we would be a people, we would be a church that's about building bridges. Because you know what? The great and glorious truth of the gospel is that God tore down every barrier so that he could build a cross-shaped bridge to us. And that is good news, amen? 
Amen. That's the gospel. And so church, let's celebrate that and let's rest in that and let's be transformed more and more by the gospel, by Christ who lives in us so that more and more we can adorn the gospel of Christ by the way we live. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.